But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Welcome back to the Sects and Murder podcast. Last we left off, Anna Schmieg and Eva Kustner were stuck in jail, Hans had been accused of sorcery, and von Gulchen was failing to bring the trial to a close. It is now the end of April 1672, and von Gulchen had no luck in convicting Anna Schmieg of witchcraft. Now, the most typical image of judgment of a witch in pop culture has a mob of town folk with pitchforks, you know, the authority sort of mixed in with them. Dispel that idea. Even though what was considered evidence has changed quite substantially since then, there was a clear legal and judicial process that had to be followed before someone could be convicted. However, it was still a fairly new thing at this point. Mid-17th century saw the judicial system revamped with the implementation of preliminary investigations careful and systematic interrogations, protections for the accused, well, to an extent, and cautious extractions of confessions under torture. Now, in most witch cases, there would be enough evidence to convict said witch. In Anna Schmieg's case, however, it was a little murky. To begin with, key witnesses and suspects were family. We also have the poisoning itself, To prove a poisoning, it wasn't just a body that was needed. Von Golchen needed a witness to the act itself of poisoning of the cakes. So his next action was to question Eva, and to try and redirect her loyalty from her mother to the authorities and God. You see, some jurists actually objected to forcing a child to testify against a parent, Criminal law at the time allowed the accused to face those whose testimony contradicted theirs, and you could pretty much see how that would play out if it were parents against kids. Von Gulchen, however, had no problem with it. Von Gulchen knew that Eva would have first-hand knowledge of her mother's baking habits. He subjected her to repeated questioning, and read to her her mother's testimony, in which Anna blamed both Hans and Eva for everything, everything that had gone wrong with their family. Quote, My daughter is worthless. She's not even worth the bread that she eats, since she was the one who took the little cake out of the sack and gave it to little Anna. And if I am a witch, then my daughter is one too, and learned it all from me. Von Gulchen isn't above a little threatening either, promising to chain her up more tightly than her mother, and in the end, all grace will be denied and you'll be turned over to feel the stern force of the law. 30th of April, Eva was brought before the court. She maintained her innocence, but also tried to help her mother. 
For some of the questions, she remained purposefully vague. Others, she used half-truths. One of these she was caught out on and forced to admit that she herself had given Anna Fessler a prettier cake than the others. But despite all this, in defending her own innocence, she had to strengthen the case against her mother. She insisted that her mother had called her from the barn to put the cakes in her apron, ordered her to take them to the Fessler house. Furthermore, it was Anna that insisted Eva give Anna Fessler the more yellower of the cakes. She testified that she didn't help her mother make the dough for the cakes, though she did put some of the eggs into the bowl for her. When asked of the two Anna's animosity, Eva told the court, When Anna Fessler accused her mother of spreading poison on the pasture, then her mother became her enemy. She was forced to confirm that she had heard on one occasion her mother mutter under her breath to the devil whilst drunk. The evening of questioning reached its climax when, standing before the court, Eva listened to the scribe read aloud her mother's words about her worthlessness and her account of her daughter acting suspicious that day. The scribe repeated Anna's words, If I were a witch, then my daughter is one too. Eva, Eva defended herself. She was no witch. Her mother might be one, but she certainly was not. This testimony was the first step von Gulchen needed for conviction. Another interrogation in the latter half of May focused on the Shrove cakes, and Eva broke. 24 questions. 24 questions was all it took. Eva held herself up as a dutiful daughter, who simply carried out her mother's wishes. Upon hearing of Anna's death, Eva was just as upset as everyone else, and even suspected poisoning when she first heard the news. Eva indicated that Anna Schmieg had made two batches of cakes, one set pathetic-looking and the other nice and presumably poisoned. As it turned out, Anna had originally planned for Eva and her husband, Philip, to eat these nice-looking cakes, but told her that if she didn't like them, she should take them to Anna Fessler's. Her mother, it seems, had begun to treat her horribly when she told her she wanted to leave to live with Philip in the ha hamlet of Nesselbach instead. Anna Fessler had lent an ear to Eva when she was upset. The final denunciation on Anna Schmieg. She told Eva she would bake her cakes one last time and that she would never again in her life eat a little cake from her mother. Anna was then brought into the same chamber that Eva was being questioned. Von Gulchen forged on with 12 new questions for Eva. This led to an expanded story about Anna's muttering. Eva mentioned that she had heard rumours that her mother talked to the devil. Anna reacted violently, lashing out, saying that her daughter, quote, lies like a whore, and denied everything that Eva spoke of. It went back and forth, each accusing the other that they were really the mastermind behind the poisoning. Eva brought up the amnesty between Anna and her neighbours. Anna responded, quote, Neighbours are often enemies with each other. At the end of the questioning, Anna declared that 
If she were guilty in her death, then God should send a sign. May 22nd, Von Gulchen dragged Michael Schmieg in for an interrogation. Michael maintained his innocence and supported his mother's side of the story. Though he couldn't say if his mother had actually done anything to the cakes. But he also supported Eva, telling Von Gulchen that she simply didn't work around dough that much. In fact, she wasn't even there when Anna was making cakes. She had left soon after to tend to the cows and fetch some wine. Anna was brought before the court again. She evaded her questions, choosing to answer, maybe I said it, maybe not, and declaring if she did do it, then they should just cut off her head. Von Gulchen pressed her, quote, if it turns out that you are in fact a witch, then do you stand by the view that you must have taught witchcraft to your daughter as well? Anna responded, How could I teach her that which I do not know? He then questioned her attempted suicide. She did not believe anyone with a good conscience could hang themselves, and she admits that she had said that she did want to hang herself at one point. It's only now that Von Gulchen asks Anna if she possesses a witch's mark. Now, if you remember from the Witchfinder episode, they were all too keen to find a witch's mark as, like, the first port of call, and they were really, really, really invasive about it. These guys would be too, eventually, but for now they accepted Anna on her word when she said that she checked herself and had seen no sign of a mark. If someone were to find a mark, then she had no choice but to confess and walk into the flames. Something I tend to find with a lot of these accounts of questioning, many of the accused tend to come off as quite sarcastic, but if you happen to find yourself in 17th century Europe, bound in question for witchcraft, maybe don't answer sarcastically in an effort to avoid the authorities reading it without the nuance of tone. To lend to this feeling of sarcasm, Anna had spent four months in chains for a crime that she did not do. I totally sympathise with her reaction to verbally bite anyone when she gets the chance to. Von Gulchen then asked her about the poisons and herbs and other magical items which a witch might utilise. Anna gave a negative to any knowledge of any sort. Anna had admitted to the thoughts of suicide and to the bitterness with her neighbours. But she was adamant that she was innocent of harming Eva Balkarin with a witch's shot, seeking revenge on said woman, supernaturally enhancing her cows to produce large amounts of milk, and she had no knowledge of the, quote, horrible toad that lived in her barn that had been seen when Anna Heimklein's child had drowned. Anna was returned to her cell with an order to cut her rations. Meat and wine was only allowed Friday and Sunday. Soup, bread, salt, and a little bit of fat for the rest of the days. Von Gulchen turned his attention back to Eva and her rather inconsistent and vague testimony. In this session of probing, Von Gulchen unfolded a story that takes us back close to a year before 
the fateful Shrove Tuesday. Hans and Anna were old, and they were just getting older. The running of the mill was beginning to wear them down. Early 1670s, the Schmiegs started to plan for their retirement. There were a large amount of laws and customs that governed inheritance. The plan was for Michael to marry first, taking the mill as his inheritance, allowing Anna and Hans to get a little college and kind of just chill. That was the plan, anyway. In the summer of 1670, Eva fell in love with a man from a nearby village. She was 18, and Philip Custer was 21. Dispel any idea that people married young in this time. That average age for a woman to wed was around about 25. This was enough of an outlier that the Schmiegs were very much against the courtship, added to by the word on the street that Philip was extremely lazy, uh, a rogue, had virtually no prospects, in short, a loser. Less than a year later, the relationship grew more intimate. Eva went to Conrad Kustner, that is Philip's father's farm, to help make hay. Not a euphemism. Around this time, Philip boasted about the two drinking wine and Eva flirting with him at a dance. March 17th proved to be an important night. Sorry to Duncan a guy from 450 years ago, but apparently he was an, quote, awkward lover. They did it once and then Philip took off. Six weeks later, they, quote, made love again, though accounts differ as to whether they actually had sex or not. Now, this area in this time, it's good to note that this act in of itself, not sex, but the whole sneaking in and spending the night together out of wedlock, was actually quite common. Very, very important detail, though, is that it was common and accepted for couples that were engaged and all but married in law at that point. Eva and Philip had no such arrangement. In fact, there was no wedding date, no engagement, and Eva hadn't even mentioned, hadn't even talked, had nothing to do with the idea of a possible future wedding. So, shock horror to Anna, when Eva told her on the 23rd of September, Mom, I'm pregnant. Hans tried to organize to have Eva wedded to a more well-to-do man with better prospects, but Eva refused on account of the pregnancy. Hans threatened to beat her in this instance. Elsewhere in the village, rumors circulated about Eva, how she had been raped during a dance night, and how she had escaped and hidden at Heineklein's house, refusing to come out or go away. Someone alerted the marriage court in Langenberg, and some of the officers called down to seize Eva for a hearing. According to Anna Heineklein's testimony of the matter, quote, When the daughter of the miller's wife was about to be taken away, on account of her whoring, she ran down to the river and wanted to drown herself. Eva would be dragged out of the river by Anna's husband, and she spent the night at their house. Two days later, Eva and Philip were before the magistrates, accused of fornication. While the court wanted to really get into the nitty and gritty of who danced with who and how close, and they really didn't need to. Pregnancy and the lack of intent to marry clearly fell into the category of fornication. 
The families of the two were asked what resolution they would like. Both agreed that the kids should, quote, get married and be brought to honour. Sounds fine then. Both are married and all is well. Well, no, not all is well. With the marriage of their youngest, their daughter, before Michael, it collapsed any hope Anna and Hans would have for a secure future for all the family. To seal the marriage, Hans had to hand over ownership of half the mill to Philip and accept him into their family, which really didn't please Hans because, as I said, Philip was a loser. And he would have to share his mill, which still had debts on it, with what was essentially the village idiot. More devastatingly, though, was how it affected Michael. With half a mill belonging to someone else, Michael's fiance and her family broke off the engagement, meaning the mill wouldn't be left for him, meaning Hans and Anna couldn't retire like they had wished, and Michael would have a hard time finding a woman without prospects of owning a mill. After two weeks, Eva and Philip were released from prison, and a wedding was arranged, so declared the court. They were also required to wear a wreath of straw to demonstrate punishment and public revulsion. This was actually an unusual practice for the area, being practiced more in other areas of Germany where a pregnant woman, shamed by her lack of restraint I guess, had to wear a wreath of straw instead of flowers for her wedding. Both families thought that part was a little bit too far, a, a little too humiliating, so the courts dropped the wreaths, but the idea to make an example of them remained. They were to be escorted by a district officer. They were to make public penance for their sins. And after the wedding, the local pastor was to deliver a damning sermon on God's punishment against adultery. The baby was born in December, and tensions in the house mounted. Hans refused to give over half the mill. Philip, in turn, refused to live with the Schmiegs and move back home. This is when Eva got close to Anna Fessler. Anna, too, had to endure humiliation early in her marriage, having become pregnant outside of wedlock, and was disciplined for her sins by the marriage court as well. Anna Fessler's advice to Eva? Get out of there, girl. Leave your parents' household, since they both clearly hate you. So, with all that information, von Gulchen devises himself a theory. Using Shrove Tuesday as a cover, Anna, perhaps goaded by Hans, plotted to murder their son-in-law and possibly others. It made sense. Murder the man who disgraced their family, who failed to support his own household, just might have been sympathetically viewed by the village. Again, not to dunk on a dude dead half a millennia, but how much of a tosser must you be for people to plot your murder and think, yeah, yeah, people might get why I killed this guy. To make this theory even more plausible, the miller's wife would have access to arsenic as a common form of vermin control. If this theory happened to be correct, then any damage to the Fessler household would be collateral damage. In fact, 
It wouldn't have been a smart move to poison Anna Fessler since by that point many of her neighbors already suspected her of witchcraft. And as I mentioned, poison was a common method for killing of, from witches. Furthermore, if anyone outside of Philip were to be poisoned, it was more likely to be Eva, which could be seen as okay to Anna Schmieg, since Eva essentially had brought all this onto the family. Having said that, though, von Golchen notes that Anna Schmieg may not have actually considered all of this. Instead, acted on impulse and threw in the poison in a fit of anger. She couldn't have counted on the fact that Eva would take the cakes and go to Michael Fessler in an effort to locate Philip since his work took him straight by Philip's Hamlet, and that Michael wouldn't be home. Back to the interrogation room. On June 3rd, 1672, Eva renounced the pact that she had made with her mother to remain silent. It appears Anna had forbidden her from talking about that day, maybe in an effort to protect her. The interrogation record reads, quote, Her mother gave her several cakes to put into her apron and told her to take them to the Oxherd Michael's house. And she put a special one in Eva's hand and said, Eat it. But Eva excused herself and said she did not want to eat it. At that, her mother ordered her to put it in the sack and give it to Anna Fessler, which she did. Anna then pressed Eva to keep quiet about her instructions after hearing about her gifting the cake to Anna Fessler. Eva said if she were to be brought before the court, she would tell them exactly how it went down. If you tell them that, Anna tells her, I will have to go to Langenberg and I will never come home again. Now I will never see you again. Now that wasn't enough for Von Gulchen. He ran through the questions again, drawing out more embellishments to the story. But still, still Eva refused to admit that she consciously knew that the cake was poisoned. When Anna Schmieg was allowed to confront her daughter, accuser, she dropped it to her knees and implored several times that she had never been little Anna's enemy. This then devolved into a screaming match between Eva and Anna. Anna denied any guilt, but if there were any guilt to be had, then both of them shared in said guilt. Anna was before the court by the end of that day, alone. Von Golchen, quote, Right now, you say you are not a witch, but if it were to come out that you are one, would you reconcile yourself to the contents of the rest of the interrogation? Anna basically threw the question of, whether she was a witch to her daughter, since a positive response would also implicate her as a witch. Perhaps in an effort to alienate her from the village, von Golchen read to her a testimony against her from her neighbour, Forst, whom she considered a friend. The questions then turned back to witchcraft, all of which Anna denied. Even though by the end of the night, Anna still hadn't confessed to witchcraft. She was isolated from her daughter and beginning to wear down from the relentless questions. 
it might seem like this case is taking its sweet time. And, well, it kind of is. Von Gulchen at this point is worried that the case might spill over, and he would have a plague of witches to contend with. After all, he was already hearing reports of other suspected witches, like Ursula Bauman, made to the court rope maker. She handed herself in to the church authorities, weaving a tale of seduction by a dark, mysterious stranger who slipped into her bedroom by moonlight and beguiled her into witchcraft. He appeared wild and disorderly and offered to take her to a dance. He straddled a pitchfork and helped her on as they flew into the air. During the dance, Stranger made Ursula write something in blood. By the end of the night, she bowed and kissed his buttocks, a sign of subjugation to the devil. Actually, come to think of it, it's kind of a, a sign of subjugation to anyone, really. Nevertheless, Ursula was so frightened by the experience, she never went back with him. Perhaps because there was no death or property damage involved, Von Golchen deferred this matter to the local pastor, believing it more of a moral and spiritual problem. Ursula was told to pray three times a day, every week, to fix this diabolical issue. Maybe Von Golchen knew that, even with the corpse on his hands, witchcraft was quite difficult to prove. In fact, not half a century prior in England, they were having that debate about credible witnesses and strong physical evidence. Check out the Matthew Hopkins episodes for more details on that. So, in an effort to lay before him, self, all the trial protocols and how Anna Schmieg's case fitted into them, von Golchen drew up a 21-page legal opinion called <clears throat> Extract of the Protocols of the Most Complete Inquisition into the Case of Poisoning Involving the Old Miller's Wife of Herden. In writing this up, Von Gulchen arranged his evidence according to legal categories. He dismissed rumours not officially in the court record, but was willing to let evidence through that we would probably consider now as quite dubious. Uh, Anna's guilty feelings and troubled conscience. The suicide attempt and Anna's reported general anxiousness also got counted amongst these. Apparently, wanting to die rather than suffering in prison means you're most certainly guilty. Queen of Evidence, in his words. Signs of a confession. Now, don't be too hard on Von Gulchen. He believed that Anna's words couldn't be taken at face value. Unfortunately for her, Von Gulchen believed that she was struggling against Satan to admit her guilt when he fought to keep her from telling under this logic, all the stuff Anna muttered to herself under her breath was an admission of guilt. The next part of his write-up was concerning the murder itself. Anna Fessler was dead. But evidence of poisoning was inconclusive. His most solid evidence was the fact that the dog wouldn't eat the cake. There was the secretive way that Anna was reportedly baking the cakes, but that's really nothing to go by. All in all, he had a dozen points that suggested poisoning, but no one had seen the poisoning, and no poison was found at the mill. He had no proof that a crime had even been committed. 
Now, up until this point, I've been quite general in saying that Von Gulchen needed to prove a murder or witchcraft. What he specifically needed was one of four kinds of testimonies. Anna had taught witchcraft, proof that she had threatened someone with sorcery or witchcraft, signs that she associated with known witches or sorcerers, or finding that she possessed the paraphernalia or sorcery. Uh, manuals, charms, poisonous toads, powders, stuff like that. So von Golchen turned to the university at Altdorf for some much-needed medical and legal advice. Sciences, medicine, technology, literature, and practical arts. All these were leaping forward in the Protestant university, becoming an intellectual hub for the region. It was here that Anna Schmieg's case was brought to the attention of Ernst Kregel, Johann Christoph Wagenseel, and Johann Wolfgang Textor. All three were extremely well-traveled, and Textor was firmly against the intermingling of church and state. It was his belief that public order could not rest on dogmatic religion, but on the reason of state alone. So intrigued by this case and its implications on rethinking the law along secular lines, that he quickly organized a formal disputation. It would later be published as a legal disputation of the corpus delecti in murder. It took place on the 9th of June. The debate began. How was a magistrate to establish the evidence of a crime in the cases of murder? There were three categories of murder. First, conventional murder. Lots of evidence. We see it all the time. Second, adultery, sodomy, or incest, which had residual traces of evidence. The third one, secret murders, like that of the poisoning and witchcraft, which left no material traces at all. Textor argued that a judge had to think beyond the evidence and make legal presumptions about what had happened and who was likely to be guilty, i.e. what was inferred by the evidence and testimony. Textor broke the problem down. First, there had to be a body. Normally, you could tell by, for example, a slit throat that one had expired due to a slit throat. Poisonings rarely left such obvious marks, especially on the outside. A typical fatal blow would have witnesses, like a tavern brawl that got out of hand. Poisonings usually never had a witness who saw the act of adding poison to food or drink. The courts would be forced to either drop the case entirely, or forge on without physical proof. A man of law found both options quite terrible. So if a judge had wounds and other circumstances on his hands, then he could presume the killer's malice and intention, which meant the usual course of law could be carried out. Thus, a new rule was created. Presumptive malice. 
which would be treated as a placeholder for actual physical evidence. Next up was the lethality of wounds. Up until this point, medical examinations were treated more like testimony, in that they weren't required for prosecution. It was just like good practice to have done, just in case. Textor argued that there was a need to add a formal declaration from a medical examiner to the court before the case could continue, and said examiner had to be a physician who relied on the latest medical and scientific knowledge that the region had to offer. This would prevent the issue Anna's case had, where three medical examiners all stood on the fence concerning actual murder. Thirdly, how the accused might contest the evidence of a murder. Folks with a bad reputation might find it difficult to argue accidents. Finally, Textor reviewed the evidence necessary for a judge to proceed to questioning under torture, which was von Gulchen's real aim. Textor argued that the law required, quote, urgent and grave signs that a crime had actually taken place. Poisoning and the hatred of neighbours fell within this definition. But to exercise caution, Textor said that two eyewitnesses would be required before von Gulchen could proceed with torture. Now, you might realise with my little summary here that the word witch wasn't actually really mentioned. And that's because Textor fell into the camp of you couldn't prove it. The thing is, you don't need to prove witchcraft in order to undermine it. By applying evidence of occult crimes to systematic examination through academic medicine, you could prove a murder with or without witchcraft. So let's get on with the medicine. Moritz Hoffmann was the leading physician at the university at the time. He studied anatomy and botany in Italy, where William Harvey was stirring controversy about his latest theory on the circulation of blood. He earned his doctorate in 1645 and assumed key professorships in medicine when the old guard passed away, becoming professor of anatomy and surgery, as well as supervising the medical garden. It was by his hand that the university shifted to include surgery and anatomy in the standard curriculum. In his view, physiology could be affected by invisible, spiritual, or even supernatural forces. Hoffman's colleague, Jacob Bruno, seven years his junior, but more archaic in his approach to medicine. Complexions, I'm sure you've heard of them. The four humours, blood, phlegm, bile, and black bile, and the balance or not of these four fluids, being the cause of conditions in the body, both seen and unseen. To be fair, it was a tried-and-true diagnosing tool of the time. Between the two men, they drew from the major branches of medicine, surgery, anatomy, and botany. Furthermore, the library records show both men were extremely well-read, having checked pretty much all the books relating to any and every field of medicine out from the library. These two men arrived at the same conclusion. Quote, From our basic and reasonable experience, we cannot conclude or abjecate otherwise than that 
the Anna Fessler in question must have consumed poison, and very possibly arsenic, by means of the little cake which she ate, because no other suspicious food is mentioned in the records. In this way, she lost her life in the most wretched way. Taking the reports the Langenberg medical men made, they focused on the blood pooling around the heart, which was the surest sign to them of the poisoning. They kind of waved away the fact that Anna had a bout of jaundice and suffered from swollen legs soon after giving birth, because she didn't really complain about those after they cleared up. Even though Dr. Thyme's report points out evidence of jaundice in the spleen. Why specifically arsenic, though? Why not? It was a common poison. And with that, they dispelled the need to investigate and find evidence of sorcery or witchcraft. It was poison that killed Anna Fessler. If magic were involved, they were still looking at a murder charge. It was July 2nd when the official report from Altdorf Medical Facility was written up. Anna Schmieg's fate as a poisoner was sealed. Let's roll back to Barbara Schleicher, because she has a spate of poisoning accusations that were similar to Anna's case. Paul Trier accused her of poisoning his wine after he fell ill. She reportedly kept repeating that he just wouldn't die. Then Carl Friedrich Lang claimed that she had poisoned him via sauerkraut. May 11, authorities found a pharmacy in Schleicher's house. She reported that the charms and remedies were used on herself, but it was a weak defense. She couldn't name many of the herbs and failed to explain the use of plenty of others. Instead of taking the lack of knowledge as just that, ignorance, the court took it as secret knowledge. She didn't know the common names because the devil had taught her in the diabolical tongue. Unlike Anna's case, Barbara had two credible eyewitnesses to her poisonings, and with the rulings from the university, von Gulchen had precedent to torture Barbara. So that it's what he arranged, with the hopes that Anna watching on would loosen her tongue a little. Anna was brought before the court with seven articles laid before her. She was given chance to confer with legal counsel, to which she refused. The court read out seven articles von Gulchen had drawn up, giving her a chance to confess to each and every one. She began to weep as she denied poisoning Anna Fessler. She denied making any special cakes that morning. She admitted to trying to hang herself, but insisted it had nothing to do with a guilty conscience. Von Gulchen presented her with all the testimony Eva had given them, and Anna exclaimed that she should have drowned her at birth, and that Eva was a wanton slut, and likely a witch as well. She refused to confess to anything, taunting Von Gulchen to prove it. When the court ran again through the testimony of her neighbours as to her being a witch, she told the court, quote, My neighbours want to make a witch out of me. Then they can have me killed. I know for certain that an injustice is being done to me. Finally, when given the chance to confront Master Fox, 
Anna said that she wanted to hit him in the face with all her strength, and that she would rather be cut into pieces than confess. That evening, she would see Master Fox again, this time in prison, where he gave her a tour of all his torture instruments. She muttered a curse, threatening to charge those people who brought her into this game before God on the Day of Judgment. Now, apart from being an extremely metal line to say to your future torturer, this is a curse that is incredibly powerful. You see, it's not a, a supernatural power, but it had a, po a power to halt the judgment process. It forced the court to examine and be 100% certain that she were guilty, for if they didn't get a confession from her while under torture, the court would be committing an injustice before God. Now the trick is, they weren't in court, and everyone involved was sure that they would get a confession, and so the curse kind of really just didn't mean anything in that particular instance. Fox began by hoisting Anna up by her hands, which were tied behind her back. Quote, The devil can take me. I've never seen any poison in my whole life, she said to them. She was then subjected to the thumbscrews, where her thumbs were screwed until the blood ran out. Quote, It helps my soul not one bit. I can confess nothing. I ask for God's sake that you believe me, so that I can earn my place in heaven. The torture, it seems, had failed. Von Gulchen turned back to the university, sending them basically everything even remotely connected to the case. Textor and the men threw out most of it. Schleicher, they recommended, could be questioned under torture again. Sure, that's fine, since she had rescinded the confession after the fact. Anna, she could only be questioned under torture again if new, substantial evidence came to light. In their 14-page document, they refused to justify a second round of torture. Quote, In documented circumstances, Anna Schmieg is not to be questioned under torture, but instead, because no strong evidence has come forward against her, she is to be released from prison. The evidence that von Gulchen presented as confessions, the remarks that were more likely said sarcastically, they weren't legal confessions. At best, they were ambiguous statements open to interpretations. No one had seen Anna poison the cakes. Eva was von Gulchen's only witness, and the law required two credible witnesses. Eva's relationship with Anna dismissed her in this aspect. Von Gulchen's chain of events were, the report says, built on conjectures and presumptions that Outdoor found dubious and deficient. The evidence that supported the theory was, quote, altogether imperfect, insufficient, or irrelevant. Despite absolutely destroying Von Gulchen's case against Anna, they offered a solution to the government of the area. Banishment. Get rid of Anna and Eva from their territory. Von Gulchen accepted this letter and let Anna go. Of course he didn't. 
He used the document as a guide to what arguments he needed to strengthen in order to convict Anna. He wrote a new report and sent it through to the court, who supported von Golchin's effort to convict. Maybe not because they believed Anna to be guilty, but because backing out and releasing her now might make the government look weak in the eyes of the commoners, who were already very critical of their efforts to protect them from threats seen and unseen. So another round of dispositions. Summon the witnesses for what it feels like the dozenth time. This time Michael expanded on the two Annas not liking each other, and Philip Kustner spilled all the arguments he had witnessed between Eva and her mother. This still wasn't quite enough, so von Golchin straight up threatened Eva with torture, even though there was no legal course to have her tortured. Eva understandably cracked, and just so happened to tell them exactly what they needed. She took an oath, quote, Every point in the testimony has been read aloud to me is true. And I testify to this not out of enmity, envy, or untruthfulness against my mother, but out of obedience to the command of our merciful lordship to prove my own innocence, so help me God and his holy gospel. Anna, who was present for this testimony and oath, looked Eva in the eyes and said, quote, if you could swear an oath to all this, then you are lost. Lost forever. On September 19th, von Golchen wrote again with this new testimony in hand. Sorry, not to Altdorf. No, von Golchen wrote to the Strasbourg jurists. Why? Well, despite being similar to Altdorf in terms of the most up-to-date in their field, which is criminal law, plenty of jurists were older and held onto old ways. Simply put, he was more likely to get a go-ahead for another round of torture from these guys who shared his views. And so we come to October 21st, eight months in prison and a round of torture. The court preacher began with the lecture about Anna's need to confess. Anna told him she was not a witch. She denounced her daughter. Quote, if I have to suffer, then my daughter should suffer with me as well, since she has brought me into this misery. My daughter is a whore, and still is a whore, and if she were not protected, then she would act like a whore again. She hardly recovered from her pregnancy when a man from Michaelbach went on after her, and she said she wanted him more than she wanted her husband. I confess that I long for revenge against my daughter. The following day, she was subjected to torture again. The thumb screws, again, but this time it seemed as though Anna felt no pain. It was recorded that she, quote, anxiously cried to Jesus. Master Fox commented that he was afraid that the devil had such a strong grip on her that she wouldn't crack under torture at all. Even this session of torture, she still refused to confess. And so it's kind of convenient that on October 24th, a mark was discovered on her body. The executioner pricked it with a needle, and it reportedly failed to bleed. She didn't flinch, and told him that she had borne this mark for more than 40 years. The next day, the court preacher, Dietzel, 
told her, quote, If you want a great victory, you have to overcome yourself. Your anger, arrogance, ambition, and evil desires. In such a way, you overcome the kingdom of Satan. To which she said to him, quote, If I am guilty in giving the cake, then God should have the plague throttle me. I know it is expected of me to admit it, but I cannot. I believe in my soul, with all the witches, you've never had such a situation as you've had with me. Slowly, though, she wavered. First, she conceded that, quote, the devil may have given her the poison. Then the confession von Golchen creamed his pants over. Quote, I put a bit of poison into the little cake, but it was meant for my daughter, not for Fessler. I poisoned a few cakes. They were sitting in the bowl. My daughter may have taken one and taken it to the teamster's wife. There were no fanciful stories about dark Sabbaths. She didn't implicate her daughter, son, or husband as being involved. The preacher pressed her to remember when she may have let the devil into her life. That's when she began to describe her sins. Back when she was a maid, a whorish scoundrel came to her and they fornicated together in the barn. The preacher then read back the testimony, telling her that the devil's hold on her had her saying the opposite of what she meant. But now, with the confession, she could tell them the truth. She told him how, in prison, a spirit had come to her and took her by the throat, wanting to go to bed with her. Crying now, begging for forgiveness, she confessed to an, another time that she had been seduced by a man from a nearby village with promises of marriage. This was before she met Hans, of course. Anna then requested to see Eva. She, quote, would like to have her daughter brought before her, wants to fall down at her feet and beg her for forgiveness. And with that, the session was over. But this isn't the end of it for Anna. On October 26th, von Golchen wrote, quote, The Miller's wife has made a good start towards a confession. The law required a little more for it to be a legal confession. Anna needed to provide detailed descriptions of crimes that only eyewitnesses could give. Obviously, in an effort to prevent people saying yes to anything under torture, just to get it to stop, but not taking into account the effect that it would have on the mind and psychology of the person. And we know it really broke Anna in this case, because there is a clear change in how she speaks, as the court records show. Under the force of spiritual, psychological, even emotional pressure, she began to use words in terms of faith, presenting herself in a light of spirituality and sin that she previously hadn't. Her next round of torture had her hastening to expand her confession. Torture again, hung by her arms tied behind her, confused and disorientated. She repeated out her long list of crimes. First, she explained how she was seduced by the devil. She presented her previous sexual liaison with the rogue as a demonic encounter, ending with a baptism in the name of the devil. The poison cakes, second on the list, 
She affirmed her earlier account of poisoning with the intention of killing her daughter. She meant no harm to people and cattle, but recanted telling them how she would feed cows bread tainted by spiders, causing harm to befall them. Everything in her life was searched through, meanings of old memories inverted and twisted, ascribing crimes and fortunes to her that never were there in an effort to make her confess to more and more crimes that would justify her death. Von Golchen presented Anna with 15 charges that came out of the torture sessions. On November 4th, Anna affirmed each charge. This document, this document was her legal confession. On the 2nd of November, Anna was allowed to see her daughter. One final burst of her old self when she said that, as a witch, she taught Eva all that she knew. Eva's reply, quote, If my mother is a witch, then I do not want to be her daughter any longer. Anna then said that she had lied. Her daughter wasn't a witch, and exonerated Eva of all responsibility in the poisoning. That's when Eva went on the attack, telling the court how she had a new mark on her back and accused Anna. Her mother, she told them, had, quote, carved little pieces out of her back and taken some of the black hairs and bristles from her sew, and that for a long time, she had not been able to wear a bodice to church, and this had gone on for more than a year. There's a lot of nuance lost by transcribing to the court record and then translating said record into English, but I'd like to think that in this final exchange between the two, Anna's love for her daughter broke through any recent frustration she might have had with her, and she not only took the entire blame for the poisoning, but she allowed Eva the chance to shield herself from further witch hunts by giving her an on-the-record reason for a witch's mark to be found on her body. Having said that, though, she accused Michael of knowing exactly what she was doing and even helping her. And Hans, too. Well, she charged him with adultery and doubled down on the Mandrake stories. He was discharged from court after Anna took back what she said, since she was simply angry and bitter at him. On the 7th of November, Count Friedrich received a letter from von Golchen outlining his plans for a ceremonial sentencing and execution. He approved and gave the man additional privileges in order to maintain public order. After all, if the accused didn't repeat her confession in public, the executioner botched his job or anything like the such went wrong, the crowds could interpret this as divine intervention and get a little bit rowdy. So, can you listeners take a wild guess at what they did up on Gallows Hill in the following days? Anna Schmieg and Barbara Schleicher were to be executed together. The court preacher did his best fire and brimstone speech, then offered them absolution and holy communion. They were given a proper meal to seal them for what was about to come. They were bound and escorted from their cells to the courtroom. The judges swore an oath to shed blood only in the name of the imperial criminal law. Surrounded by them, two women confessed, once more, openly, to the public. 
The scribe repeated their crimes, then the sentence. Anna, Elizabeth, Schmieg, and Baba Schleiger were to have their flesh torn by red-hot tongs and then burned to dust at the stake. In recognition of their contrition and the confession of their sins, their pain and suffering was to be lessened. After the executioner tore their flesh with tongs, they would be granted a mercy death prior to the burning. They would be strangled with a rope, and their lifeless bodies were to be burned at the stakes. Concluding that portion of the proceedings, the chief justice broke the ceremonial staff into two and said, God help you poor souls, and asked the executioner to carry out the sentence. As the two were let out, chief justice forbade anyone present on penalty of bodily punishment from seeking out revenge for this act of justice. The executioner led the women out of the court. It was common at the time that the condemned were fortified with a strong wine, but it's not recorded whether this was the case for these women. At Gallows Hill, the executioner tore at Anna and Barbara with hot irons and then strangled them with a rope. After their bodies had been burned to ashes, the executioner asked the chief justice if the law had been carried out, quote, If you have executed what the law and the sentence require, then the law has been fulfilled. Pastor Weibel penned the death ledger, quote, The 9th of November, Elizabeth Hans Schmieg, the miller of Herden's wife, for sorcery and witchcraft, who, forty years ago, gave herself to the devil, who did a great deal of various evil things over many years to people and cattle, bound at Langenberg to the stake, then strangled and burned. And thus concludes the case of Anna Schmieg, the last witch of Langenberg. This has been the Sext and Murder podcast. Thank you for listening.